This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello, I'm Philip Nice. This is Trumpet Hour, and tomorrow is Thanksgiving Day. We have so much to be thankful for. I will probably be saying that tomorrow. Probably you will too. We have so much to be thankful for. So much. I have so much to be thankful for. You have so much to be thankful for on Thanksgiving Day. What to be thankful for? To whom to be thankful for it? That's what we are going to devote our next few minutes together here on Trumpet Hour to stopping and thinking about how much do we have to be thankful for? So, dear listener, wherever you are right now, you are hearing these sound waves and you are hearing them as they are produced by a device, a car radio, a home stereo, desktop computer, laptop, tablet, smartphone. Now, think about that device, if you would, for a few seconds. Turn your attention completely to it. Separate it from its surroundings there in your mind. What does it look like? How large is it? How heavy? What color is it? What shape is it? And unless you're operating a motor vehicle at the moment, here is something you can do for a few seconds. And there's a reason for this. Just concentrate on that device. Think about that exact object, that combination of those grams of plastics and alloys and lithium and graphite and tungsten and copper and silicon there with you right now, that object, and the fact that that object exists. Now imagine that it does not. It doesn't exist. It has never existed. It's not a device. It's not an object. It's not an it. It's not gone. It never existed. You never had it. The person before you never had it. It was never manufactured, never a part, never material, nor a mineral or a molecule of it ever laid in the surface of the earth. In place of it, nothing. So why are we doing this? Well, this concept, nothing. I mean, you know what it is, I know what it is. Yeah, the thing's gone or it never was, whatever. Although it is a challenge to show a five-year-old that I know what it is. Daddy, where was I before I was in mommy's tummy? Uh, Well, you never existed. How? Well, (laughs) so to really understand a concept, nothing, nothingness, you have to stop and think. Nothing, non-existence, absence, void, instead of your device, nothing. Instead of the room you're in, nothing. No chair, no table, no light, no ceiling, no joists or rafters or decking or shingles above it, just the sky above. No paint on the walls, no walls. 
Not a tile or a stick of hardwood or a loop of carpet. Nothing. Nothing. Now. No building. The entire structure. It's not destroyed. It's not gone. It never existed. Never existed. Instead of the building you're in, nothing. Instead of the street you're on. Instead of the neighborhood. Instead of the town. Instead of the trees and the waters and the terrain. Instead of the topsoil, the subsoil, the clays, the bedrock, the granite, the basalt, the entire tectonic plate, the entire lithosphere, the magma, the mantle, the outer core, the solid core of the earth, nothing. It takes a moment to stop and think. It takes concentrating, imagining, to actually understand what this means, this concept, nothing nothingness, no objects, no people, no planets. And we're talking about this drastic difference in terms of space here on this eve of Thanksgiving Day because we are about to talk about a drastic difference in terms of time. The beginning. How much do we have to be thankful for on Thanksgiving Day 2023? We go back to the beginning. What did exist in the beginning, before anything, before everything? Life, mind, and thought. Before anything was, this was. Before anything existed, this existed. And what was this? This was life and thought in the form of a being. In fact, two beings. Therefore, there's not only thought, but the sharing of thought. There's not only action, but interaction. Two-ness. Communing, relating, relationship. This, This existed. This was. And not two beings, if I can conceptualize it in this way, in a big empty universe, because there was no universe. And as far as I can understand it, there would never have to be a universe. They were not the only two beings in the universe. Again, if I can conceptualize it this way, they were the only two beings in reality. Nothing was real that wasn't them. Whatever they were and did defined them and therefore defined existence. Their nature defined reality. And what was that nature? Nothing else existed but this. Life, thought, the sharing of thought, action, and interaction by giving, by loving, intelligence and purpose and power and all together in a word, love. There was nothing in reality but these beings and they thought and acted in no other way but love. That's the beginning, the kernel, the origin, the root. That's what was and is reality. Nothing else is as real as that. Nothing else defined and defines reality. Everything else is like a figment. Everything else is recent. And I think it's safe to say that since there was apparently nothing else in reality, there was nothing above these beings or around these beings or below these beings to compel them to do anything. In other words, 
As far as we can see, so far as I know, other living beings were not inevitable. I was not inevitable. You were not inevitable. The universe was not inevitable. But then those beings, because of who and what they were, because of their nature, love, that defined reality itself, because of their genius and possession of wisdom, because of power that is literally, technically, definitively, without exaggeration, glorious power, those beings decided to create and did create what had never existed before, new beings. In all of reality and for all of eternity, new beings did not exist. And now these two beings design, now they create new beings, new life, new bodies, new personality, new minds with power of choice made straight out of their power because that is what existed. These beings, their power, and now new beings. And then, something new. Thick blackness and light, great lights particles and charges and ions and magnetism and mass and heat and matter and gases arching and spanning and swirling and nebula and clusters and galaxies, galactic walls, clouds and disks and rings and asteroids and comets and meteors stretched out, stretched forth, color beyond the spectrum, sound beyond comprehension, stars ordained into their circuits, spheres into their orbits, the heavens, particles, in their vibrations, sounding a kind of tiny and yet immense music. Spheres, planets, positioned in their movements according to a musical scale. Rhythm and drone and percussion. Size and shape, position and movement and time and existence. Something. Glorious. Glory exists. Look up and you are looking at it. And you can look up at it. And you can raise a looking glass to it or launch one into it. Despite all the distance and time and mass and odds and your own tiny existence, you can see it. Stars and suns and moons and spheres. So much to be thankful for. Stars and suns and moons and spheres. For signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And now we come to the sphere on which you stand, fastened upon its ancient foundations, measured and laid, hanging upon nothing, its pillars, its core, its crust, just a thin layer Underneath is turned up, as it were, by fire. And upon it, this pale blue dot, as it has been called, the face of the deep. The waters. Upon the surface and just above the surface, garmented and bound with thick clouds, spread and balanced and numbered. The storage places for the wind and the hail, the vapors and rains, summer and winter, the breath of the frost, 
the treasuries of the snow and of the lightnings. The weight of the deep gathered in its fullness and out of the face of the deep. Land. The boundaries of the coasts sloping up and out. The ranges of the mountains thrusting upward. Silt and shale, sand and lime, granite and crystal, the rock, the vein of silver, the dust of gold, the places of sapphires, the rivers cutting through the stone, the causes of dirt to striate and clod, the position of the bedrock to hold water for a time to come, bacteria and lichen and mosses and grasses and vines, and the miracle that is a single oak tree. Herbs and seeds and blooms, and out of the soil comes bread. And in the deep and in the air and on the dry land, innumerable creeping things and beasts, small and great, fed and watered. And whether we are in a frame of mind to be thankful or not, we usually skip to this next part. The existence of man. There was nothingness. Now there's the dust of the earth, and from it, man. Body, mind, thought, the sharing of thought, life. And that was not inevitable. Man did not have to exist. We we did not have to continue to exist. There was every reason for us not to exist. But because of who and what they always were and always are, those two beings... There was the stars, the suns, the moons, the spheres, the renewing of the surface of the earth in seven days. And just before the seventh, man. We have so much to be thankful for. Man and woman, husband and wife, and everything, lilies, cedars, grasshoppers, antelope, owls, bears, reproducing because... Man reproduces because God reproduces. Family life and sharing of thought and learning and doing and emotion. This had been nothingness. And now out of the power and the nature of these beings, it exists. We have so much to be thankful for, and birth after birth, generation after generation, for all the eternity, for all the space and time, for all the reasons that man could be nothing that never existed, we exist. On a sparkling, bejeweled, nourishing, mighty marvel of a sphere of thick white clouds and green-brown dry land and the blue face of the deep, And for those men about to observe Thanksgiving Day, on not just any part of that green-brown dry land, and not just any part of time, but a certain part in particular.
This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. I'm Philip Nice. Happy Thanksgiving Day Eve to you. We have so much to be thankful for. We have covered some ground, you and me, in the first portion of the show. We went back to the beginning. We went back before the beginning. We're thinking about that comment. We have so much to be thankful for. So much. And now, at long last, we come to a particular continent and to the existence of the United States of America. And joining me now in the studio is Andrew Miller, who has some years as a Philadelphia trumpet author and on his own time, reading about, learning about, writing about Anglo-America. Andrew, you quoted to me that saying, to make an apple pie from scratch, you have to begin with the creation of the universe. We've done that. So now let's talk about how America was made from scratch. <laughs> yes, actually, many American families have a tradition on Thanksgiving of going around the table and saying what they're thankful for. And so if you participate in this tradition, it's my goal today to give you some things you really should be fundamentally thankful for that you haven't probably haven't thought about. And one of them, you can ask if, you're, if your uncle asks you what you're thankful for, one thing you could say is, I'm thankful that the North American continent is located between the world's two largest oceans. See, see how your uncle replies to that. <laughs> yeah, see how your uncle replies to that. But, but you can, <laughs> yeah, there's a good logic reason to say that. Otto von Bismarck, the German chancellor, famously said that America is the most fortunate of all the countries because it's surrounded on the north and south by friendly nations and on the east and west by fish. <laughs> uh, Bismarck, being a man who spent a good bit of his life invading France, invading Austria, invading other countries, realized that like here in North America, especially in Bismarck's day, you don't really have to worry too much about being invaded. Prophecy tells us that the end time conditions change, but for, for most of America's history, the fact that we have the Pacific Ocean on our west side and the Atlantic Ocean uh, on our right side makes it very difficult for Europe, China, or any other power to get over here and invade the North American continent. It's protected. And not only is it protected, the United States portion of the North American continent is a bit more blessed than either Mexico or Canada. Sorry to our Canadian listeners. But Canada is also protected by the world's two largest oceans and surrounded by a friendly country on the south. But because it's up in the northern latitudes of the planet, Canada is never going to be an agricultural powerhouse. It's too, you, you do grow some in the southern pl uh, Great Plains of Canada, but you do not have the bread basket America has because Mexico is too far south for that type of temperate growing season and Canada is too far north. So of the, of the continents of North America, all three continents of North America are protected by these two big oceans. But America is not only protected by these two big oceans, it has tremendous agricultural wealth because it's in a temperate latitude. It's in a temperate latitude. And, and not only that, we're zooming in here closer on the North American continent, because if you look at the United States a little closer, you've got the Appalachian Mountains on its eastern coast, which provide another layer of protection for the central part from invasion, and the Rocky Mountains in the western part. But in between the Appalachians and the Rocky Mountains is the Great Plains. It's about 500 million acres of farmland, half a billion acres of farmland. 
it's the, actually the largest contiguous piece. That means it's all together. It's not broken up of arable farmland on planet Earth. And not only is it the largest contiguous piece of arable farmland on planet Earth, protected on the north and south by friendly nations and on the east and west by fish, it's interconnected by the world's largest navigatable river system. You've got the Mississippi River going down to the port of New Orleans and its two main tributaries, the the Missouri and the Ohio, plus dozens of smaller tributaries like the Arkansas River that goes through our own Tulsa, Oklahoma here just a couple hours east of us. But one really astute geopolitical analyst, Peter Zeehan, he wrote a book on America being a superpower. His book's actually titled The Accidental Superpower. He has a pretty good quote in here. He said, America's rivers transform cities deep in the interior, such as Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, St. Paul, Minnesota, Sioux City, Illinois, and Tulsa, Oklahoma, into ocean ports. You don't normally think of Tulsa as an oceanic city, but cowboys here in Oklahoma, and they still exist, can herd their beef herds out to Tulsa and load that frozen beef onto ships that goes straight down to New Orleans, and if it's a refrigerated ship, ship anywhere on earth they want. You mentioned that to me just immediately before the show, and uh, I told you I've driven down I-44, and I've seen a sign that as you begin to go over a bridge, over a river, that says Port of Catoosa, and I told my wife, oh, I wonder what strange reason there is for naming a city in the middle of Oklahoma, in the middle of the continent, a port. Was that named after someplace? Because it's clearly not a port. I was dead wrong. It's an absolute port <laughs> that, just like you said, can ship to the world by waterways. You and I had this conversation with one of the other Trumpet staff members a little while ago over, over email. I remember I was looking up, why is it called Mar-a-Lago, that estate that Donald Trump owns? And it means from the sea to the, the river or the waterway. And that's when I learned about the Great Loop which you don't hear about as much. But this is this, this system of waterways. Some of them are canals. Some of them are frozen in the wintertime. But you can sail a boat or steam a boat from Florida, from Mar-a-Lago, to somewhere up in, like, Massachusetts, over to Michigan, I think it is, and back. Like, this enormous loop that goes over the eastern third of America. And I think a lot of people use it for, for pleasure and, and so forth. But it facilitates commerce in an amazing, amazing way. And it's like it was designed. It's called an intracoastal waterways that links Florida and, as you said, some of the coastal waters that are protected by the Boundary Islands, all the way to the Erie Canal, the Great Lakes, and the Mississippi River System. Right. I've got actually a couple statistics here with that. Here's an amazing fact. You can tell your uncle as well. The guy's going to get an education. Uh, There are 17,600 miles of internal waterways in the United States. By way of comparison, that's more than all the internal waterways on the rest of the planet combined. China, which is roughly the same size as the United States, only has 2,000 miles of uh, internal waterways. And the reason... America is just so many light years ahead of every other nation on Earth is primarily the Mississippi River Basin and the Great Loop. Of that 17,600 miles of internal waterways, 15,500 of it is the Mississippi and the Great Loop together. 
I don't actually have statistics for how much the Great Loop is and how the, how much the Mississippi is, but I know that if you subtract the Mississippi River and the Great Loop, America has roughly as many internal waterways as China does, and they're roughly the same size, so that makes sense. Hmm. So it's really the Mississippi River Basin and the Great Loop that put America way ahead of any other nation on Earth in terms of waterways, which is very easy to underestimate the importance of because America's got a lot going for a natural resource. Well, in terms of arable land, there is 1,652,000 acres under cultivation in the United States. India has slightly more, but not much. In terms of raw natural resource wealth, you're looking at oil, gas, timber, uranium. All those things together are worth about $45 trillion in the United States. But Russia is worth about $75 trillion. So Russia has more natural resource wealth than the United States does. And India has about equally as much arable land. But neither Russia nor India have anything close to America's river system. That means <laughs> if, if you're a farmer in Cincinnati and you grow corn in Cincinnati and you want to export it internationally, like Tulsa, Cincinnati is an oceanic port. You take your corn to Cincinnati, you're right on the Ohio River, you go right into the Mississippi, right into the Gulf of Mexico, ship anywhere on earth you want. If you're a farmer with a similar farm to the Cincinnati farmer, in Kazakhstan back in day of Soviet Union, you're going to need like a mule train or a truck or if it's a winter, a dog sled or something like that to get that grain someplace where buyers are. And that's like really hard because you're in the middle of Kazakhstan. Like, how am I going to get this grain out of Kazakhstan? The farmers in Ohio don't have that problem because even though <laughs> the, the plains in Kazakhstan and the farm fields of Ohio are roughly equivalent in value, America has a river system to get that stuff wherever they want it. And that means that even though their farmland's about the same as India's and their natural resource wealth is actually less than Russia's, their ability to sell that wealth at low cost wherever they want in the world is unsurpassed. It is a system of highways. It's a system of highways built into North America. I, I just love this quote from de Tocqueville. This is from Democracy in America, Alexis de Tocqueville, who traveled all over America. He, he begins with, North America presents in its external form certain general features which it is easy to discriminate at the first glance. A sort of methodical order seems to have regulated the separation of land and water, mountains and valleys. A simple but grand arrangement is discoverable amidst the confusion of objects and the prodigious variety of scenes. I don't even think he was getting at what we're saying, that you, you can link all these together and you can build a superpower economy on, on this. You can sail a Navy destroyer to Philadelphia. <laughs> you can ship beef from Tulsa to the entire world he was just observing the, the exterior form of North America, and he saw a sort of methodical order, a grand arrangement. But like you said, you could have all these advantages, and you could have centuries of history before America even became a nation, as is the case in India, as is the case in Russia, and yet not have the result that we have seen in America because there have been some other factors as well. 
If you're, you're going around your Thanksgiving table looking for what you're thankful for, we've just talked about the tangibles, like the rivers, the timber, the grain, the beef, the things you can feel, the things you can touch. But we haven't factored in the ideas yet, because that's another thing where you can say that like, okay, well, America has an advantage over India and over Russia because of its river systems, even though India has about the same amount of farmland as we do, and Russia has even more natural resource wealth than we do. But then there's also how do you use that wealth? If you live under a communist government that does not give you the ability to buy or sell as you want, and it has fixed prices and rent controls and other things that stifle economic activity, you can have $75 trillion worth of natural resources like Russia does, and Putin's commonly ranked as the richest man in the world, but the average Russian person is very poor compared to the average American. And the entire economy is about the size of Texas, I think, if I remember right. Yeah, actually about the size of New York City, which is probably about the size of Texas. Yeah. So yeah, you could compare it either way. But then you get the ideas, like the freedoms. And you look at those freedoms, you, you have to look at what was happening in the lead-up to America's purchase of the Louisiana River Basin. Thomas Jefferson purchased the Louisiana Purchase, which is mostly the Mississippi River Basin, in 1803 for adjusted for inflation, about three cents an acre. <laughs> wow. But before that, you had the Constitution. And then before that, you had the Virginia Statute of Religious Liberty. And before that, you had the Mayflower Compact. And before that, probably most importantly of all, in the 1530s, you had King Henry VIII of England publish what is called the Great Bible. It's the first English language translation authorized by the king for public use. Before that, throughout most of the Middle Ages, you either didn't have access, either the printing press wasn't invented yet, or the Bible hadn't been translated into your language, or if it was translated into your language, you lived under a Catholic dictatorship that burnt people at the stake for reading the Bible with the Great Bible, and I think it was 1536, King Henry VIII said that this is authorized for public use. It means the king wants you to read it. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after that, they did the Geneva Bible, which the pilgrims used at the first Thanksgiving, you'd have the Geneva Bible. And then shortly after that, 1611, you had the King James Bible. This wasn't done by Henry VIII, but this was done by James II, who brought in the best Hebrew and Greek scholars in the world mm -hmm. and really put together an English translation of the Bible that has not been surpassed to this day. Yeah, and that's 1611. And you and I were talking about the convergence of these things. You have the Bible available for people to read it for themselves. And just in, in a kind of a rapid succession, historically speaking, you have the emergence of the colonies, you have the independence of the colonies in 1776. As I mentioned, you have Wealth of Nations published, but saying that, that people should be free to transact how they choose, also known as capitalism, which is not as good a word for it, but freedom of transaction, freedom to buy and sell. Also in 1776, you have the Bible spreading. You have now a lot of Bible helps, people who've indexed the Bible, people who've like made it easier to, to understand, publishing what they've published, the commentaries or concordances or whatever. And all of this is happening 
in pretty rapid succession all at once. Yeah, the Geneva Bible that the pilgrims used was the first Bible to actually have chapter breaks and numbered verses. <laughs> so you could actually quote chapter and verse from the Bible. You could never do that before. Right. And then, like I said, the King James come right after that. So by the time you, the founding fathers all quoted the King James and so by the time you're getting to this founding generation, you've got the first society since ancient Israel where the common man was biblically literate. Mm. And so you get documents like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison produced with the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom that drove the popes in Europe crazy because this document says that, hey, it's like there's a creation, therefore there's a creator. We have free will. Therefore, our creator gave us free will. Therefore, if you try to force your religion on another man and use force of arms to make him say he believes something that he doesn't actually believe, you haven't just sinned against that man. You've sinned against the creator that gave him free will. You like put yourself in God's place. Right. And so you're using some basic biblical principles that you— wouldn't have known we're biblical in the Middle Ages because you didn't have a Bible, but you've recently found out we're biblical. And then wrote a Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom, actually published January 16th, 1786, just a couple years before the Constitutional Conventions getting started. Right, right, right. And so that was used as the template for the First Amendment, which guarantees us freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of press, freedom of religion— all these freedoms that Americans were able to use to be like, okay, now not only am I a farmer on a farm stand in rural Ohio with my wife and my kids and my Bible and my mule and my cornfield sitting on the port city of Cincinnati, but it's like not only do I have the logistical ability to ship my corn to Europe for a profit, I also have the legal right to do so. Right. I don't have to take my corn profit and send it to uh, George Washington in Washington, D.C. because he owns all the corn in the nation as some sort of god emperor like <laughs> right. in Egypt or Mesopotamia. But you've actually had the people that are willing to, to be able to take the wealth that this natural resources gives them and use it for the betterment of themselves and their wife and their children and their family and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and their great-great-grandchildren. I, I told myself I wasn't going to brag, and then I, I'm going to break my word to myself here, but it's, <laughs> I've actually got a copy of the the Mayflower Compact here, which is one of the—that's 1620. That's the first—it's based on the concept of the religious covenant, like God covenanted with the people on Sinai. This is, like I said, we're going to establish a covenant— and, and the concept of the covenant really underpins the concept of a constitution. A constitution is just a covenant between people, and actually in, in the Constitution's case or the Declaration of Independence case, it even cites the creator. So a covenant between the people and their creator. The as, as does every state constitution to this day. Every single one of them cites God. But right, yeah. Yeah, so we've got the Mayflower Complex. Well, this is the first example of that. I've got a copy of it in front of me right here with the the signatories. There's a couple dozen signatories. One of them is William White, who is my 12th times great-grandfather. Wow. So it's like I said, there's rights that he fought for or that farmer, that anonymous farmer I made up who actually existed in some form. I just don't know his name. <laughs> right. In Cincinnati, like I said, you can use these rights that come from 
the King James Bible and the Mayflower Compact and the Constitution to use your beef and your corn and your stuff for the betterment of your family, which now allows someone like me to enjoy a higher standard of living than 90% of people on planet Earth today and 99% of the people who've lived on Earth throughout human history. And a freedom of mind, a freedom of speech, a freedom of religion, a freedom that that is not, I think a lot of people misunderstand freedom as just an anarchy kind of thing, but but freedom, freedom under the law to, to live your life according to the dictates of your conscience, as the founders would say. And, and I, I, so I just wanted to ask you in, in closing, whether you have an uncle around the Thanksgiving table, Andrew Miller, or whether you are the uncle around the Thanksgiving table, if you were asked of all these exceptional blessings that seem to have a simple but grand arrangement, that seem to have a sort of methodical order that you've talked about today or we've talked about a lot of other days or we've read about or, or written about, how, how would you sum it up? Or what's one that you would say, what an exceptional blessing? Let me answer this two ways. <laughs> I think the greatest of the blessings I've mentioned today, I actually think the King James Bible is the one we should value I don't know any other languages than English, so if there wasn't a good English translation Bible, I would not be able to know how God tells you to live your life. Or, or the prophetic significance of the other blessings, uh, which is the second way I want to answer this question, is I, I think the King James Bible is the, the top blessing I've talked about today. But the next two, which are probably tied for second place, are the U.S. Constitution— and the Louisiana Purchase. And I don't have an uncle around the Thanksgiving table this year. I am an uncle around the Thanksgiving. I've got two nieces who maybe next year I'll tell them more of this stuff. They're still a little <laughs> young. but And a nephew as well who's like very young. We'll put the book The United States and Britain and Prophecy by Herbert W. Armstrong in the show notes that actually explains to you that the Ephraim and Manasseh were the two sons of the biblical patriarch Joseph who was the son of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, who you've probably all heard of. Ephraim and Manasseh became Britain in the United States. Ephraim was Britain. Manasseh was the United States. I tell my history students at IA, they said Manasseh was unique amongst the tribes as it was the only tribe in ancient Israel who actually had two pieces of land. There was a, a chunk of Manasseh that was on the east side of the Jordan River, and there was a chunk of Manasseh that was on the west side of the Jordan River. When the Assyrians came down to carry Israel captive, God had prophesied through Moses, the United States and Britain in prophecy will explain this to you, that if Israel turned away from God, he was going to punish them for 2,520 years. A very interesting, not a round number. <laughs> like it, yeah, it, well, it, it derives base, from... On a base seven system it is, but it's... I, okay. All right. Yeah, seven prophetic years of 360 days. Okay. Uh, so seven times 360 is 2,520 years. The, the United States and Britain prophecy will break down the math. But the interesting thing is, is because Manasseh had two lands, one on the east side of the Jordan River and the west side of the Jordan River, the entire tribe was not taken captive at once. Uh, Tiglath-Pileser came down and took the east side of Manasseh captive in the year 732 BC. Then a handful of years later, Shalmaneser V came down, took the west side of Manasseh captive 
Uh, between the years, there was about a three-year siege between the years 721 and 718. So I'm going to check, you can check my math if you want to hear. But if you take 2,520 years from the first captivity of Manasseh in 732, it brings you to the year 1789, which is when the Constitution went into effect. If you take 25,020 years from the cap- West Manasseh went into captivity in 718 BC, it brings you to 1803 when Thomas 1803. Jefferson purchased the Louisiana Purchase. So if God said he was going to punish you for 2,520 years, at the end of those two 2,520-year periods, he was going to give you a blessing. Those two blessings are the Constitution and the Louisiana Purchase. And I've spent a good bit of time today trying to explain to you why America's exceptional wealth is based on the fact that there was a society grounded in the principles in the King James Bible who was given in 1789 a constitution that gave them the freedom to manage their own personal wealth as they saw fit. And then in 1803, the world's largest chunk of arable land interconnected by the world's largest arable river system, that farmer in Cincinnati could take his corn and ship it to England at low cost because it was on a boat the entire time. Definitely take a look at the United States and then Britain and Prophecy for more details there. But those are my three things. If we we were going around a table saying what we're thankful for, which we actually are, my three things, I'm going to cheat and say three things, would be the King James Bible, the U.S. Constitution, and the Louisiana Purchase. American exceptionalism. We are talking about exceptional, exceptional, exceptional blessings created long ago presented far beyond our control to add or detract a sort of methodical order, a simple but grand arrangement is discoverable. That's what American exceptionalism really is. And Andrew Miller, we could talk about this in so many ways, in so many directions, but I think you really summed up those two amazing, exceptional occurrences, the existence and the conference of the arable land and the navigable rivers and then the, the form of government that cannot be separated and still have the level of blessings that you and I are experiencing on this Thanksgiving Day. So, Andrew Miller, hope your uh, Thanksgiving Day around the table, as, as the, the aforesaid uncle, goes great. And uh, thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. is Trumpet Hour. So there are some thoughts we submit to you to perhaps take with you into Thanksgiving Day this year. Did you wake up this morning? Did you wake up perhaps in the United States of America? Did you wake up with life and breath and thought? And can you share your thoughts? And do you have family? Do you have husband or wife? You're not nothing. 
You really are something in the hand, like every living thing, of him who is mindful of you. The eternal, the creator, the I am, he who made depth and breadth and height and time, clothed you with flesh and fenced you with bone, he who made earth and sea and dry land in all its fullness, and he who made and who upholds all things by his power, visible and invisible, by whom all things consist. When you look up at the stars on this Thanksgiving Eve, or perhaps after a nice Thanksgiving meal, looking up through that molten looking glass into the universe that did not exist for eternity and now does, we can remember because of his will it existed and because of his will we exist and you and I have so much to be thankful for. For all the rest of the news and for all the rest of what may or may not be happening in your life or my life, we share this at least. And we share all of it with every American. And we share all of what matters the most with all of mankind. That is our trumpet hour for this Thanksgiving Eve. We hope that you will email us your thoughts on the program at letters at the trumpet.com. We want to thank Isaac Lorenz for engineering and production. If you like the design of the music and sound you hear on the show, Email us at lettersatthetrumpet.com and maybe I will give Isaac an attaboy and maybe buy him a coffee downstairs at the Herbert W. Armstrong College bookstore. So we thank Isaac Lorenz for all that he does for Trumpet Hour. We thank you for listening to Trumpet Hour. We look forward to being back with you after a fulfilling Thanksgiving day with the Friday morning week in review edition of the program. Have a meaningful Thanksgiving day and thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. <laughs>